Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. All right. Welcome back to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. I'm here with Paul Kaminsky. Hi, Paul. Hello, Chris. Hello, listeners. Great to be with you again. And as our listeners already know, Paul is officially the new co-host of Take It Away, the new other half of Take It Away, and we are thrilled to have him. And I was thinking today about how this is our fifth episode together. Yeah. It's, yeah, we've actually logged some hours already. We've logged some some real flight hours here. Um, <laughs> thank you, Chris. And thank you to all the listeners who have been so nice and supportive. It was super fun to do the McCartney 3 episode with you. And the response we got back was just so warm and lovely. So thank you, everybody. I'm not going to get mushy on you again. I get mushy yeah. on everybody all the time. I'm not <laughs> doing it this time. But I am going to say thank you. It was a wonderful response. I was very confident that people would be very happy with you as a partner on this. I was nervous going into that episode. I'm thinking, is this going to hold up? But I'm really thrilled with what we've done so far on all four of those. And (laughs) I suspect this one will go great as well. So this is quite a strange project to be doing. It's a little different from our usual take it away material. And it's a little different from what we normally get from Paul McCartney, except on Twin Freaks and Fireman. So there is some precedent there. That's right. Have any general reactions to the album, Paul? Well, McCartney 3 Imagined, I was so happy when this album was announced because I am such a fan of several of the artists included on this and was a little puzzled by the inclusion of some other ones. But I actually got to know (laughs) some people through this, too. So it was just a reaction of excitement for me, particularly because it's such a nice idea. You mentioned Twin Freaks. Now, that's one of my favorite McCartney projects. I don't find every song on there super listenable, but as far as what I'll keep on if it's on a mix or comes up on a shuffle, most of those tracks on Twin Freaks are what I'm keeping on. And in fact, I love and I listen to for fun because I'm a maniac, the sort of hour and a half extended DJ sets that Paul plays before his recent live shows, Uh because those are in a similar Twin Freaksy sort of vein, but they're a little more loosey-goosey. They're a little more like a DJ set, but I love that stuff. I love remixes. I love remixing Paul. I love hearing weird songs that we wouldn't normally hear in different ways. Part of the appeal of those DJ sets are hearing like a French version of You Won't See Me or something. Mm. So the appeal for me from this is hearing like Women and Wives by St. Vincent or Seize the Day by Phoebe Bridgers. You'd never hear younger artists necessarily or more modern artists covering these songs otherwise so i'm happy that there was a contrivance to bring them all together and the last thing i'll say chris is this i often wonder what would current 
Paul McCartney songs sound like if young Paul McCartney was doing them? Hmm. Would I like them more or would I like them less or would it be about the same? And since we can't actually do that until Elon Musk creates a <laughs> some sort of animatronic, lifelike, young Paul McCartney monster robot to do that for us, until we have that, the only thing we really have is hearing modern day younger artists performing these songs and it was a delightful surprise i really enjoyed it i wish they pushed it further in some cases but yeah otherwise very very excited and happy with this release chris your take what were your first thoughts when this was announced and first thoughts on the listen well i don't have a particularly happy relationship with remixes in general (laughs) okay so (laughs) so, you know i didn't take it very seriously but it turned out to be a wonderful little sampler of some artists I didn't know. And so almost like getting a little mixtape or set of recommendations from a, a trusted friend. So I really had a wonderful time getting to know all these artists. Now, I have to tell you, these artists are, I don't really know very many of them. I have a lot of history with Beck. We'll get into that. And I'm aware of an admirer of St. Vincent, although I'm not terribly familiar probably with their last couple albums. Yeah. Outside of that, some of them I've heard of, but don't know very well, and some of them I hadn't heard of. So some some great discoveries to be made there. You know, as it happens with the more established artists here, you know, the pop music path that I took in the last 30 years just didn't go through Radiohead or Queens of the Stone Age or Caius. It just didn't. Right. I just am not very familiar. You know, when I saw EOB, I had no idea what that was. I didn't find out till I looked that up. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I li- I love a decent enough fan of Radiohead, but I was in the same boat. I was like, oh, that guy. Oh, that's why this sounds like this. Okay. <laughs> but I made some discoveries here or some, in some cases, reinforcing, you know, people that I had suspected were interesting. And I'll be following that up. It's an interesting album from the perspective of its, how do I put this? It's actually a mix of covers and remixes yes. and kind of runs the gamut from pure remix to pure cover, and some interesting hybrid things in between. So it was cause for me to reflect a little bit on remixes and you know, what my understanding of that as a medium is. And I guess it goes back to the 80s and 12-inch singles, huh? Yeah. I think of Duran Duran, The Reflex, for example, <laughs> getting that 12-inch single. And maybe one reason I'm not such a huge fan of remixes is that those early remixes on 12-inch singles were pretty insufferable. You'd get a lot of the <laughs> reflex, flex, 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 flex type stuff, you know. <laughs> I remember, though, being excited about, like, the Say 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 remix because small town, young kid, I didn't have access to bootlegs, and this is the only way I was ever going to hear exposed bass lines and exposed drums and just acapella vocals by themselves on top of the drums and stuff like that. Yeah. So even if I thought it was a bit goofy musically, it was very enlightening to hear that and find out what's really in those mixes. Wow. Anyway, I I do think that this album, it, it does run the gamut, and several of these remixes are of the sort I dislike where it just has nothing to do with the original song. We'll talk about them when we get to them. Uh, whereas we have some sensitive remixes and some, as we said, outright covers that are all quite interesting, that really bring some illumination to the songs, I think. That's interesting, just to go back to you saying, hey, that remixes were the only place 
to sometimes hear these stems. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Back then. And that's so cool because I remember thinking that about the McCartney remixes, those endless McCartney remixes. And I'm coming at remixes from a place that is largely Paul-based. When I When I was a kid, my dad made me a bunch of CDs of, like, every version of Le Soleil. And I would just... <laughs> Damn, Dad. Yeah, it was like 43 minutes of a saw. Just... <laughs> so I'm bicycling around suburban New Jersey, listening to Paul McCartney operate a, a handsaw and with a dance beat behind it, thinking, I don't know what this is. I don't even think I like it, but it is happening to me. And so when I hear some of this stuff, I'm brought back to that place of like that yeah. childhood place. And so I appreciate it from that level. Also, because it's nice to hear him doing this stuff again. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, he's still trying. I would have preferred more covers. In fact, the covers we got, I thought, were overall stronger than the remixes we got. I was hoping for more of that. The covers are the highlights for me. I guess primarily also because I wanted to hear what a different vocal would sound like on these songs. Mm. And I was actually a little disappointed to find out that everybody kept Paul's vocals on there pretty much, except for like one or two people. Except for a few really notable ones, yeah. And then you get to something like, which we'll get to in the track by track, St. Vincent. That's almost a whole cloth new track she made, but she kept Paul's vocal on it. And so I'm like, couldn't you just have gone the slight extra distance? Because <laughs> I would have <laughs> rather have heard her give it a go. But She brings so much of her personality to that track, though, that I think it's... I think keeping the vocal is okay. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get yeah. To it. So good experience overall. Not an album I'm going to be going back to repeatedly. But, you know, nor for me is Twin Freaks. Same with Fireman, other than Electric Arguments, which I, I consider a late Macca masterpiece. But yeah. <laughs> besides, the, besides that, the other Fireman, I admire them. But the other Fireman albums, I probably don't revisit very often and won't. So this was a great experience and a good sampler, but probably not a long-term addition to the rotation. Yeah, he brings Fireman up on the press tour for this, actually. He does, yes. I think that's cool. I like that he keeps referencing that. And he doesn't draw too much attention to it, but he sort of likes a mix of the anonymity and a mix of the avant-garde aspect of that project. And I think that this kind of scratched that itch for him a bit. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to come back to this either. And in fact, in the case of some of this, I thought it was going to be hard work to have to listen to it again. <laughs> but I was actually surprised at its repeat listenability in most cases. There was one track I'm thinking of in particular, which I thought, am I going to have to slog through that again? And then when I did, it was actually quite nice. So I was surprised. I think I probably had the same experience with that track. And <laughs> I think I know the one you mean. And furthermore, I too found myself warming up to some of this stuff, maybe not liking it the first time through, but then, you know, looking into the artist a little bit and then coming back to it and enjoying it quite a bit more on a second listen. So, hey, maybe I shouldn't be so... So hasty, maybe I will come back to this album. Yeah, we'll let it burn a burn a new wrinkle in our brains, Chris. Another Paul McCartney wrinkle. That's what I need. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't have been some sort of mathematics or astrobiology or physics. It displaced or some mathematics, actually, is probably yeah. what it overwrote. Just took out the little bit of math I have. Yeah, third semester so. geometry is gone. It's been replaced by an eleven-minute deep, deep feeling. 
<laughs> well, you know what? If I ever need the geometry, I'll rewrite it. How about that? <laughs> I'll reallocate the space. So, Paul, give us a little background on how this album came about. Absolutely. I would love to. So the road to McCartney 3 Imagined is not quite as robust as the road to McCartney 3, which we discussed in that episode. But the idea came about from Paul's manager, Scott Roger, whom you'll remember from our McCartney 3 episode discussion as the guy who scouted Third Man Records and the guy who suggested to Macca that he lean into this project as a chapter in the McCartney series. He's the dude who picked the artists and coordinated all the details around this release. So to quote Paul here, one of the things for me was that I didn't really know too much about who was going to be asked or who was agreeing and stuff like that. I left that to the record label and my manager. So it was a great surprise to me when I got in the post or on the phone, Beck's track, Dominic Fike, so many cool people. So that's a quote from Paul here. Now, Along these lines, I'd like to take this opportunity to shout out Scott Roger for the incredible work he's done with Paul's later career. And doing this research and figuring out how this McCartney 3 Imagined came into being really made me kind of appreciate him and his role in Paul's career more than I had in the past. Yeah. So he's a partner at a place called Maverick Artist Management which managed some of the biggest acts in the world, like U2, Madonna, The Weeknd, Nicki Minaj, Aerosmith, to name a few. But he became Paul's manager somewhere in the mid-2000s, I think around 2006 or so, so just after Chaos and Creation, and his first album with Paul was Memory Almost Full. Paul had called him cold after getting his number from Stella, who did the legwork to find Scott Roger for Paul. So think about that Dance Tonight Apple commercial. Mm -hmm. Like that was kind of in the zeitgeist for a while. The success of new Egypt stations, a number one record, McCartney 3, the stuff with Kanye, Rihanna, Pirates of the Caribbean. The fact that Paul McCartney has been exposed to so many people in the last 10 to 15 years, and not only that, young people in the past 10 to 15 years, I think has a lot to do with the tenacity of his management because this guy, Scott Rogers, seems to really have his finger on the pulse of what Paul should be leaning into. So you think about the vinyl releases of McCartney 3. I mean, I don't want to put all of this credit on Scott Rogers because Lord knows what he actually did. But But he's certainly the head of the team, right? Yeah. Yeah. And spearheading these efforts. I read your notes about this and thought to myself, geez, you know, Paul has been very visible you think about how Paul kind of disappeared for a while in the late 80s, for example. Yeah. There's been nothing like that going on. Every release has been huge. Lots of interesting publicity and people complain about the elaborate multiple packages, but they seem to sell units at a time that nobody sells units, you know? Yeah, they work. You're either going to play the game or you're not going to play the game. And Paul McCartney is here to play the game, right? He's here for a number one record. Sure. Ringo said that one time. I think he was on the press tour for Road to Grave Viewer. He said, if we're not doing this for a number one album, what are we doing it for? Well, mm. old Richie doesn't get the number ones anymore, but Paulie does. And so there's, yes, he does. there's something to that. I think obviously a lot of that is Paul McCartney's legendary status. It's not quite the same thing as Ringo. But yeah, he's out front there. He's on SNL with Nirvana. He's playing at the Olympics. He's playing all of these places. He's on SNL at all. He's on SNL. He's been on like multiple times in the last 10 years. Yeah. Like that's, 
He's huge on SNL, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. in the videos. He's hanging out with Johnny Depp, who's you know maybe not the greatest look right now. But back then, 2013, let me tell you, that was the bee's knees. Oh, that video that had all the stars in it? Which Queenie one was that? Queen, Queenie well, Eye. Queenie Eye yeah. had all of them, but Johnny Depp was also in the early days video. I think he plays guitar with him in that or something. Oh, okay. Queenie Eye's a cool song. I love Queenie Eye. Can I tell you something, Chris? I mean, this, this is just a secret for you and for the audience and for everybody listening. It's a secret. <laughs> Queenie Eye is my get myself pumped up before a job interview song. Oh, yeah? It works almost every time it's implemented. I don't yeah, apply I can, for that many that. jobs. <laughs> so you don't, you're not getting yourself too worked up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being, I headed into the city. I was living in upstate, uh, I was living in Westchester. I was driving into the city for a job interview and I'm in my car driving past the GW Bridge going, Queenie, uh, Queenie, you know, like Dwight Schrute, you know, shaking the wheel and getting all pumped up and stuff. <laughs> anyway. So back to the story of McCartney 3 Imagine. Now, Paul may not have been terribly involved in the selection process, but we do know that he called or got in touch with most, if not all, of the artists after they were selected for the project as a sort of a meet and greet type of thing. So you'll often hear in the interviews, oh, remember when we talked last or blah, 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 blah. So Paul kind of gave them the brief a little bit in addition to what his management team sent over. So each artist involved in the project, including Paul himself, didn't know what anyone else was going to do with the tracks until they were already finished. It's a quote from Paul. I always thought that was great because I thought Josh Hame doesn't know what Beck's done and Beck doesn't know what Josh Hame's done. So I love that. It's going to be a surprise for everyone on the album. I think it hangs together great myself. And Paul references this a lot in the interviews. He did a lot of Instagram live chats where I got most of this information from, actually. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. watching him talk for 25 minutes almost on the nose to almost everybody on the project, which was, again, something put together by his management, his PR team, things like that. I think he got a bit of freedom. He was attracted to the freedom of the idea. So even if the idea didn't stem from him originally, again, it's like that fireman sort of thing, that twin freak sort of thing you, re- you mentioned he kind of likes the free form floatiness of it all. Yeah. And then Paul is so funny. He's it's adorable. He credits lockdown as a primary reason for people saying yes to the project, which is ridiculous because he's <laughs> Paul McCartney. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he does reference that quite a bit. He's like, yeah, I think they only got did it because they didn't have anything else to do. I'm like, yeah, he gave them something to do. You Thank are God. misreading the room, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in the midst of all of this activity, he got the double Pfizer. So he's out there, baby. He's working. He's hugging people. He's looking some doorknobs. During the course of these interviews to promote McCartney 3 Imagined, he's talking about being in the studio with producers and working on tracks. And he's working on High in the Clouds and seeing Peter Jackson cuts of Get Back and all this. Yeah. Dude's a busy, busy boy. Those Instagram interviews are pretty wonderful. He's very charismatic. So in the Annie Clark one in particular, I thought he was, he was really himself. It reminded me, Ryan and I used to talk a lot about that Q Magazine audio interview. It's not really an audio interview, you're just hearing the audio of the interview. It was a print interview. But he sounds so normal and so himself. He's not doing the put on, you know, McCartney PR mode. Right. It's really quite cool. I, I thought in particular the Annie Clark interview, he really seemed... You know, yes, charismatic and charming and, you know, an elder statesman of pop music and also just a regular guy, a cool guy, 
you know, so I, I love that. He did seem fairly at ease. And I think it's just because he's in a good place. Maybe it's because people are picking up again, mm-hmm. you know, but they are very conversational, very jovial talks. I think he also feeds on the energy of the people talking back to him. And it's clear when he's had a prior relationship with somebody or when he's meeting them for the first time. <laughs> well, I he... loved how mellow and blissed out Annie seemed, too. There were some delicious, awkward pauses where she just sat there and waited for him to say something. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, she just got together with Ringo, too. She's doing that documentary with Dave Grohl about life on the road. I forget what it's called. It's called like Made on the Road or something. But Ringo's in that and Annie's in that. And Ringo and Annie share a, a sequence where they talk about farting in the tour van. Oh. <laughs> and I remember her saying, I never thought that my... My theatrical debut with a Beatle would be talking about farts. <laughs> Quite notable. Quite notable. <laughs> so anyway, the McCartney 3 Imagined project was first glimpsed on March 11th, 2021 in the form of the audio and video for Dominic Fike's version of The Kiss of Venus, which is one of the more reimagined tunes on the record. Dominic yes. went in and... We'll get to it when we talk about the song, but he went in and changed lyrics, added lyrics, added whole sections of the song, really kind of made it his own. And so that gave me, at least at the time, the impression that that was what everybody was doing. Hmm. And I was sort of hoping that that was the case, and it didn't turn out to be. But nevertheless, the video for The Kiss of Venus is great, and Paul makes a little cameo at the end there, and it's super cute. And it was pointed out, I'm not sure where, it may have even been on the Take It Away Facebook group, that Paul's cameo at the end where he's sort of holding a newspaper and he kind of pushes it down a little and you see his eyes over it. It's like a potentially a subtle nod to the beginning of A Hard Day's Night where he's reading the newspaper on the bench. Hmm. Almost sort of hiding hmm. a little. I, mm-hmm. I don't know whether it is or not, but I kind of like it either way. And then the album was released digitally on April 16th, 2021 by Capitol Records, but has yet to see its physical and vinyl releases ship. So we actually don't have a record to hold in our hands or look up information about on Discogs, Chris, for this one, which I don't know if it's a show first, but it sure feels like one. As we will see later, we won't really have chart information until the physical album comes out, I think. Right. In July. Yeah. So that's the story, Chris. That's the story. I just want to reiterate again, hey, it's 2021. We've got new McCartney albums from 2019, 2020, and Let's count this, sort of, right? 2021? That's yes. pretty cool. That's pretty damn cool. <laughs> yeah, and he was talking quite casually in one of those interviews about how, yeah, we'll, maybe we'll save this project for the next one. It's something he's working on now that might be on an upcoming album. You know? Yes. So he's going, and he's going hard, and he seems good. He seemed great in those Instagram interviews. Really yeah. Struck by that. So, shall we dive in to side A, we assume? <laughs> we think... We yeah. think this is the album scene. It might not be the actual vinyl sequence, but we'll call it side A. And our opening track, Find My Way. Paul McCartney and Beck. Well, I can find my way. I know my left from right. Because we never close. I'm open day and night. Clock. 
So this is interesting to me just because of Beck's involvement. I have not been keeping track of Beck in recent years, but I really go way back with Beck. And this is the one artist on the album that I really do have some familiarity with and some uh, affection for. At least he was very relevant to me at one time. Big surprise, the late 90s. <laughs> so I was in California in the, in the late 90s when I really got into Beck, but I was introduced to Beck really like everybody else with the song Loser. Right. And I was in college at the time. And I would just say this. If you had to describe Gen X to someone, what that <laughs> means, well, you could just describe me for one thing. Oh, okay. I was going to say, because Beck in that music video is a walking you- Gen X <laughs> You've got it, though. You've got it. You know what I'm getting at. So With the hat and the fucking... Exactly. I'm 1972. I know that not everyone born during that era had the Gen X experience, but I really did. And when this song came out in college, I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? Man, first time I heard that line, I was like, yes, this is a true anthem. (laughs) This is is for us. (laughs) This really is for us. I wasn't even following pop music very closely at the time. I was in college studying classical music and wasn't keeping up, but I saw it on MTV, you know? (laughs) Like a true Gen Xer, I saw it on MTV with some friends, and we all just looked at each other like, dude... This guy is cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the little yeah, him, him ambling down the street. Yeah. Yeah. So in grad school in San Diego, I got really into Beck. And I guess I won't dwell on this too long, but Beck was really important to me for a, a few years. The whole era of Odelay uh, Mutations was particularly important to me. That's my favorite Beck album of the ones I know. Oh, cool. And, you know, my love for Mutations basically led to endless disappointment from then on. Oh, wow. Yeah, because Midnight Vultures seemed to me at the time to be a step back from the songwriting he'd gotten to on Mutations. And he never quite went back there. I I did really adore Sea Change when it came out. Mm. It seemed to harken back a bit to the songwriting on Mutations. And the songwriting I loved on One Foot in the Grave, for example, that little side album of acoustic guitar, kind of acoustic-y stuff. Rowboat from Stereopathetic Soul Manure, stuff like that. Just good songwriting from Beck. Love is a plague in a mix-match parade Where the castaways look so deranged When will children learn to let their wildernesses burn? And love will be After Sea Change, I kind of lost interest. I kept buying the albums, but none of them meant much to me. And I I feel like I changed and not Beck. Because listening to this track, Find My Way, I found myself thinking, yeah, this sounds like Midnight Vultures. Right. This is why I started losing interest <laughs> in the first place. Nothing's changed, apparently. All the hallmarks are there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, maybe a lot has changed because I haven't heard. Modern Guilt was the last one that I purchased and listened to carefully so maybe a lot has changed and this is a throwback and i don't know that but anyway that that's my little story of my my love for beck and and how i eventually drifted away but those albums from the late 90s will always be so important to me Uh, so excited to see a beck contribution on here but what do you think well just really quickly modern guilt ryan and i covered that album on now hear this that is that happens to be really the only Beck album I truly love, <laughs> mm. and that's 
I think just because it's a hip hop beat group mm -hmm. record, it's just sort of pop tunes, Mersey sound with hip hop on it. I remember that having a real 60s throwback vibe. Yes. Uh, yeah, that I yeah. liked a lot. Gamma Ray and all that. So I actually did a bit of a dive at that time into his catalog because I know him a little bit, but I was never a huge fan. I liked Garrow a lot. I liked Loser like everybody. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, that, that song is particularly good. And what I found in the research was that song was sort of a throwaway that wasn't even on an album. It was just like on some single for a, like a like the pre-getting-signed-to-a-label kind of phase of his career. Yeah, he did it on a four-track. And then it just got picked up and took off, and then, boom, he's got a career. And, yeah, getting to know his body of work was fun. I know some folks who played on Sea Change, and they said that, you know, even being in the studio at that time was transcendent. So, look, I think the guy's super talented, and he's been friends with Paul for a while. There's that funny video of him and Paul getting turned away from an after party at the Grammys. I don't know if you remember that. Huh. No, I don't know about that. They show up at a door. I think they were trying to get, I don't remember whose party they were trying to get into, but the bouncer didn't recognize Paul or Beck. And so there's video of it and they get turned away. And I think it might've been the first time Paul McCartney was ever turned away from any place hmm. in his entire life. And Good so Lord. he kind of turned it into a joke and he's like, quick, Beck, we got to write another hit right now. And so they sort of <laughs> mock, come up with a song on the spot. And the bouncer's just like, I don't care. Like, you can't come in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so anyway, we know they were palling around for a while at least. And so I, yeah, I, I like Beck. I don't love him. I like him. When he comes on, I dig it. In fact, St. Vincent did a Beck remix last year that I quite enjoyed. So I wonder if Beck is a you-had-to-be-there thing. Maybe. How much of my love for Odelay and Mellow Gold and that set of albums is just, I was there in the late 90s, and it seemed really relevant and really interesting and unusual at the time. The whole aesthetic did. The whole like ramshackled junkyard quality of those first few albums <laughs> just really, really spoke to me for some reason. I, I get it. I get it. It's the as a genuine quality to Beck. And it's before people were talking about, you know, things like appropriation and things like, because when you look at Beck's life, you know, he was from a fairly like well-to-do family and then he just decided to become like a vagrant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah, just yeah. decided like, yep, yeah, nope, I'm going to go and <laughs> sojourn for a while. And yeah. then he like took a lot of hip hop sound and a lot of like Latin kind of beats and things like that. And just stuck it all together just cause he was an artist and he was having fun and he was living in the gutter. And that was, and in, was the in the air, air too. Well, the beastie boys were another group that meant a lot to me in the nineties. And you know, he's kind of doing a Paul's boutique thing oh, on sure. mellow gold and on, on Odelay. Yeah. Yeah. There's strong songwriting underneath the trappings. And so even if you're... Well, that's the thing. And that's what I heard on Mutations. I just heard him come forth 100% as a really interesting songwriter. But to my ear, he never went back there ever again. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, at the time, he referred to Mutations as not the actual follow-up to Odelay. So it was almost like a side project. Huh. And I knew when Midnight Vultures came out, because I, I was a grad student. I was a TA, so I had students of my own at the time. And I remember talking to them about Beck. And when Midnight Vultures came out, I remember saying, yeah, I'm disappointed. I, I like mutations so much. And I knew that I was out of touch 
with the zeitgeist when they all looked at me and were just like, well, I fell asleep during mutations. <laughs> well, yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> that sounds, that's where I should be. That's my album. <laughs> yeah, hearing it on this record, it's not a particular highlight for me. It does give me some of that 80s Endless Maca remix kind of vibe. I like it. I like that it exists. It does have that signature Beck sound we were talking about, the slow crawl slacker disco beat of it all kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The ambient voices, the sound of the blocks sort of stuff. It just, I don't know, it sort of wears on my ear a little bit. It's definitely a low point on the album for me. There are two remixes on this album of a sort that I particularly dislike. I guess they're remixes. They're not really remixes, right? Because Beck just did whatever he wanted and flew in the vocal. Mm. And he changed the mode and he changed the key. And I really especially hate it when the vocals don't entirely work in the remixer's chosen new mode or key. This Beck feels a little like that. You know, it's not really the same song. It does have the words in the vocal, but I mean, it's reconceived to the point that it's just Beck doing whatever Beck wants to do. And I... That's kind of a bummer. I mean, he went into it with a mission statement. So there was an intent here. I don't know if the intent was to necessarily dwell on the song so much as his quote was, quote, I want to get Paul dancing. So I think he was just trying to make a dancey little number for McCartney. Mm -hmm. And I actually don't know. Maybe our listeners know. I suppose we won't know until we get the physical release, and maybe still not even then. I'm not sure if he's harmonizing with Paul or if he's just pitching Paul's vocal differently and having Paul harmonize with himself. Hmm. I couldn't tell. The YouTube that I was watching, because I don't have the album. I didn't download it yet. So I was actually being just a scumbag and watching it on on YouTube. Like (laughs) one of uh, the common folk. (laughs) Right. And uh, let's see. It has some some credits, though. So let me just see if... So it does say vocals Beck. Oh, interesting. It also says programming and synthesizer by Dylan Herman and additional programming by David Greenbaum. I'll keep this up so we can refer to that sometimes. Yeah, that's great. So you're right. You did hear Beck's voice in there. He answered my question. I guess this song came about, Beck was, <laughs> he said he was at Loose Ends in Los Angeles. A quote from Beck, my whole year was canceled with the shutdowns and everything. My engineer's wife was having a baby, so he wasn't available. I really hadn't been making much music. My studio had been dark for a year. And that's when word came that Paul McCartney had a new album in the works. And his team reached out to Beck to remix one of the songs. And Beck said, okay, McCartney's calling. Let's get in there and figure out how to make everything work. And he recalled thinking, it gave me something to do. Yeah, and so that's what he did. Thank God. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like he was lounging about. Right. So working alone at a home studio overlooking his backyard, he picked up a Hofner bass and a, quote, thrift store guitar that I put through some old pedals, quote, and thought back to a night a few years ago when he went out dancing in Hollywood with McCartney and McCartney's wife, Nancy Cheville. It's the warmest time of the year in LA, a loose and lazy time of year, and the feeling of that was coming into the track. I wanted the whole thing to sound a bit weathered and warped, almost like a lost groove from some other time. And I wanted to make a track that would feel like the night when we were all hanging out 
and having a good time. Well, that's kind of sweet. Makes me think of the track a little differently. Well, there fact. you go. And, and maybe that's the point and, you know, I should loosen the hell up. So, should we move on? Yeah, track two, The Kiss of Venus. This is Paul McCartney and Dominic Fike. The Kiss of Venus has got me on the go. She scored a bullseye in the early morning glow. Then I asked her, have you read the paper? Okay, people talking about which side they're taking. And if you know the baby, what's your take on it? Does it make you wanna leave? Cause I could look the other way for you. What do you think? I really appreciated at first blush that he made it his own. And this is the track, this and the Phoebe one are the ones that come the closest to giving me what I wanted on here, which was to hear Mm -hmm. a young artist do a new Paul song just to kind of see what would happen. Yes. And so I'm not like in love with the track. And it's actually growing on me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I find myself coming back to this one more than most on the record. So Mm -hmm. it was a real boomerang effect for me on this one. Chris, what was your thoughts? Actually, very similar, Paul. Uh, You know, my first listen, I disliked it intensely, actually. Because (laughs) I... (laughs) Well, I had liked it as a McCartney pick-a-ditty, to use your terminology. I had loved that it was just going to be a little Macca ditty on guitar and very cool. And I pictured someone doing that, but better. And so when I got this kind of R&B-ish thing that changed the tune around and added lyrics, I got a little defensive at first, you know? (laughs) How dare you, sir? (laughs) Yeah. On a second and third listen, I actually warmed up to it quite a lot. And in the context of the entire album, you're right. This is one of the ones that's a true reimagining. Yeah. In the end, it's not one of my favorites. I still kind of dislike... So I saw the video. And this guy is, he's cool to the point of smug or something. Mm. <laughs> now, I'm just reacting. I don't know much about this artist, so I'd hate to think someone judged Beck on this remake, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so same kind of thing. I'm not judging this guy. I don't know. But I really hated the way he sang in the verse, the way he sort of simplified the melody, omitted the interesting parts of the melody. And as the song goes along, as the track goes along, it actually really builds and starts to do a lot of interesting variations. And... By the end, he proves himself quite a good singer. Yeah. I just don't like that vocal fry kind of thing he's doing in the verse where it's it's almost put on cool. Like, right. I can't be bothered to breathe. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah. It's, I don't know. It's this is really all very personal, I guess. But in the end, I, I agree with you about it being a true reimagining. And therefore, in that sense, one of the highlights on the album. Now, I love that it culminates in that big soaring pop vocal at the end. And actually, looking up a bit about this guy made me like the song more. Almost all of the tracks had that effect on me. I'm just going to quote here from Rolling Stone from this guy, Dominic Fike. He says, I was in my kitchen making a sandwich, and my manager came up to me like, yo, I think Paul McCartney just hit you up. And he's like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) That's the correct response. And I went back to making my sandwich. (laughs) <laughs> then a month later, he was like, by the way, that shit's due in three days. 
So he says, I went to the studio and in three days I created it, kind of like God and the Earth. It's a kind of biblical thing, if you really think about it. It's fucking deep, dude. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) He taught himself how to play the song on acoustic guitar, and it was a little harder than he expected. He said, normally with any Paul McCartney song, you can go on YouTube and type in how to play, and there's like 70 different videos of people from different backgrounds in their rooms on webcams teaching you how to play it in different keys and shit, he says. But there was none of that for this one. So once he had the basics down, he invited his friend Ryan Rains to help build the fragmented pop energy he was looking for and freestyled a couple of new verses. And he was like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I like these lyrics, Fike recalls. But apparently Rains said, nah, they're Paul McCartney-esque, so we ran with it. Fike said, I was made fun of for listening to the Beatles as a kid. I would go to school and try to put people on. One day, my friend Pat sat me down like, yo, dude, you got to stop this classic rock shit. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I can relate to that because I was made fun of up until high school for listening to the Beatles. Really? Pretty incessantly. Hmm. And then in high school, it flipped. Suddenly, it became cool to like the Beatles again because you could kind of be one of the rock kids. Like high school is really when you define that who you are sort of stuff. And so you can revel in the classic rock a bit. And so I, I had that experience, but I was mocked pretty relentlessly for it as a kid. So I, I found myself relating to him. I was like, oh, good. I'm happy other people went through that. But also like, hey, he was listening to the Beatles as a kid and he was putting up with shit for it. That counts for something, right? Yeah, sure. So he says it was pretty validating to have this project <laughs> come, come up. <laughs> well, I could imagine. Pretty validated. A little while after Fike turned in his reinterpretation of The Kiss of Venus, he got another surprise. McCartney called him when he was in Puerto Rico on vacation with his girlfriend. Fike says, he was like, I fucking love your version, man. And he was telling me how they made Sergeant Pepper and shit. Fike laughs happily. I was just trying <laughs> not to be weird on the phone. So, like, that's cool. That makes me like the whole affair a bit more, actually. <laughs> Yeah, once again, you know, you hear the background and it it kind of tweaks it for you. But I don't have too much to say about this track. It's not a one I'm going to be putting on mixes and stuff like that. But like most of these, I'm happy it exists. Well, let me ask you this, because we disagreed about this track on the McCartney 3 episode. Does this put the song itself in a better light at all? Or are you still kind of lukewarm on the song? I like this version better than the record. Okay. Yeah, because you were just having trouble with the vocal. It was the vocal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I may dislike the vocal in the first verse on this even more than anything on the McCartney 3 version, but (laughs) (laughs) once he gets going, this guy can really sing. So yeah. yeah. Well, Chris, you actually turned me around a little on that song. Not all the way, but you turned me around a little because I started thinking about that circle of fifths thing and we circle through the square and yeah. suddenly I find myself skipping to that song just to hear that stuff again. Hmm. And so you explaining that to me kind of has given me a, a bit more of an appreciation for the original version. Very cool. That's why it's worth talking it through. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, speaking of which, the next track was also a low light for me on the original. Pretty Boys. This is McCartney and... Oh my God, I'm going to mispronounce this. So I looked up a performance and they were introduced as Krungbin. Krungbin. 
but that wasn't a band member pronouncing it that way. So I guess we just apologize to their biggest fans who almost certainly are not listening to this. But You were pretty smitten with, with the Pretty Boys, weren't you, on the original? Where'd you land on this one? I liked it okay on the original, yeah. Along with the Beck, it's my least favorite, I think. Wow. Because talk about nothing to do with the song. At least the, <laughs> at least the Beck does fly in the entire vocal. This is just this band doing whatever it is they do and flying in like detuned vocals. It doesn't even matter if it's in the same mode or key. It's just, they just flew in some, you know, processed Paul on top of doing whatever they want to do and what they do. I did click around quite a bit on their stuff and it all is kind of like this, meaning it's kind of groove oriented stuff, kind of jammy at times groove stuff. So not really my cup of tea anyway. They play really well, though. I want to give credit where it's due. These guys can play, but it's just what they're playing that I don't care about much. Yeah, I've heard some controversy actually over, well, maybe not controversy, but disagreement over what exactly their genre is. Mm. I looked into them a little bit, and I guess they describe themselves as a Thai funk band. Okay. I don't really know what Thai funk is. Yeah, I don't either. But there's lots of world music style influence in this with the odd dub, soul, psychedelia sprinkled on top a bit. It's mostly instrumental from what I found. Well, they're a tight band and they can really play. They get a sweet sound. I just don't go for this endless groove stuff. Well, Paul said of this one, the person I spoke to out of Krugbin was Laura Lee, the bass player. I said, well, first of all, how do you pronounce that name? Krong, krong bin? Krong bin? Apparently, it's something like crown bin. Oh, okay. So the woman introducing got it wrong, too. Yeah, without pronouncing the G. Then I said, second question, what does it mean? Is it like someone's name or something? And she told me it's Thai for airplane. Hmm. This is the kind of interesting thing you learn from people. I just rang them and told them how much I liked the song and asked a bunch of questions. I felt like a journalist, says Paul. Okay, so we're going to pronounce it Crown Bin then. Crown Bin. I like that we found our way to Crown Bin. I don't think we go back in and fly in the Crown Bins. (laughs) Hey, look, I try always to find an interview or someone introducing the band or something, but I... You know, because otherwise I'd be saying Josh Holm. Right. But, You're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's Mr. Josh Holm. <laughs> I guess we're just a couple of dumb fish, Chris. This is not a particular highlight for me either, although it gives me that weird dance remix thing that is scratching that Paul on the handsaw from Uele Sole's 12-minute dance remix <laughs> thing. Sure thing. Yeah. Uh, the scatting going on in the back is sort of nice. I don't know. It's fine. I don't think I'm going to come back to this one, but it's fine. I like. I don't mind the groove. Okay, so moving on then to... Women and Wives, 
St. Vincent, now we're talking. Yeah. This oh. is some stuff right here. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's the good stuff. Hear me, women and wives. Hear me, husband and lovers. What we do with our lives seems to matter to others. Some of them may follow roads that we run down, chasing tomorrow. Chasing tomorrow. So I have to say, a disclaimer for everyone I am a St. Vincent Stan. I have been a big fan for a few years now. In fact, Ryan and I covered St. Vincent's Mass Seduction on Now Hear This. And I love her. I love her whole deal. She is a guitar rock goddess from Alpha Centauri, and I'm here to be taken away. So her real name is Annie Clark. She describes St. Vincent as her superhero name, and she is a very, very talented guitarist and songwriter and singer. And she just put out a new album called Daddy's Home, which is I think is very, very good. Sort of a 70s homage record, but... She's here doing a remix of Women and Wives for Paul. And I think I said a little bit about this at the top. What I love about this is she is playing every instrument on this track, and she also provides vocals. But the only thing lacking for me is she kept Paul's root vocal. Mm -hmm. So his lead there is still on the track. And I guess I would have preferred, just if you're going to go through the trouble, you may as well just... You may as well just sing it. But I think a lot of this comes from the ambiguity of the ask. You hear that a lot in the interviews where they're like, so we can just do whatever. And yeah, yeah, Paul's people were like, yeah, I kind of wish that Paul's people were like, nah, put your own spin on it. Do it yourself. Like, I wish there was a little bit of more specificity there. But so the YouTube credits on this one list Paul McCartney as vocals and piano. Oh, okay. So I think they retained his piano and also Evan Smith baritone saxophone. Everything else, including drums, played by Annie Clark. Also, some really wonderful additional vocals by Annie Clark. Yeah, she has a harmony going on in there. And uh, there's a call and response at a certain point, and then it kind of builds to when the call and response voices merge with Paul's, and it's like this wonderful Beatles style build to a point kind of thing which I really appreciated and I thought kicked this song to a whole new level Hear me women and wives Hear me husband and lovers What we do with our lives Seems to matter to This one was not a favorite for me on McCartney 3 and of this McCartney 3 Imagined. I think it's it's either my favorite or very close to it. It's definitely one of the highlights of this album, for sure. I don't mind that she kept the McCartney vocal. We split a little on this one. I did like this song okay, and I was cool with the vocal. I even went so far as to play a little lead belly on the episode to to make the point. But I actually dug the vocal, and I think it's okay that she kept it. 
It's really good because I think that it's not so different from the original, actually. She's reharmonized it a little. She's mostly adding color tones to the harmony and occasionally substitutions, like little chord substitutions. And that's about it. So she's really being pretty true to the original song, but doing what you should do with a cover, which is bringing enough of yourself to it that there's a reason to cover it, you know? You're not there to do an imitation, and you're not just there to do whatever you want and fly in a vocal, you know? This is really in the spirit, I think, of the project. Really good. I am happy to hear you say that, Chris. I'm of the same opinion. If you're going to do a cover, you may as well make it your own. Why copy it, you know? But also, why turn it into something so radically different that it also doesn't really matter that you did it? It's a fine line. It's a fine line. Like, you talk about maybe like Please Mr. Postman, when the Beatles cover that, they don't radically change the song, but they do put their spin on it and turn it into something kind of new. Sure. Well, if you think about it, we have a really rich history with this, with the Great American Songbook, with all the songs that were written for musicals and Ten Pan Alley, etc. in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s that Frank Sinatra was singing and that Ella Fitzgerald was singing and that everybody was singing. You know, we don't get much of that anymore and haven't for a long time that you just sing the famous songs of the day, <laughs> right? <laughs> so Ryan and I talked a little on the McCartney covers episode about like what a cover really is. And I guess there were disagreements about that on Facebook. It didn't mean to spark controversy, but <laughs> I was going with a pretty rigid notion of what a cover is and saying that, yeah, Frank Sinatra is not a cover artist, right? Those are standards and he's doing a version. None of those songs that Frank Sinatra sang were associated with a particular artist or were primarily known as the province of a particular artist, which that's what a cover is when you're coming to something that's really defined by an artist. Now we're in the record making era and it's, it's very different the way we think about these things. But even in the 60s, as you were saying, with the Beatles and with so many other artists, you know, a lot of people were doing Beatles songs in the 60s. Yeah, Ella, the aforementioned Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, well, yeah, and, but a lot of just contemporary bands. Among the songs on their album would be a couple Lennon-McCartney favorites, you know? Right. You know, that was still a holdover, I think, from the, the whole treatment of the Great American Songbook by jazz pop singers. Wow. Guess I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to that covers episode and hear a little bit more about that. I don't know if I've ever really thought about that to any great degree other than perhaps listening to that episode the first time and forgetting about it so <laughs> interesting well I'd forgotten about the conversation myself until yeah. just just now I was thinking gee we did talk about this whole issue of what a cover is so in approaching this song Annie said I probably listened to the bear track for a hundred hours I mean I spent a whole lot of time with the material and every time I listened, every time I heard Paul sing, my enjoyment would get deeper and deeper. The quality of his voice on that track is so resonant. I listened to it over and over and got something new out of it every time. I particularly relate to that quote because even though I don't love this original track, again, it's a vocal thing for me, but I do love the lyrics. And we talked a little bit on our McCartney 3 episode about that lyric what we do with our lives seems to matter to others. And when Annie mm -hmm. sings that line, she puts the kind of inflection on it that I think I was reading into it. You know, she's a queer woman in rock, so she's not necessarily in the majority <laughs> necessarily. Mm -hmm. But those types of issues would be top of mind for her, you know? And that's kind of how I was interpreting it when I heard it. What we do with our lives seems to matter to others. I'm thinking, you know, gay marriage, stuff like that. Interesting. 
I don't know. I, it's possible I'm reading into that. It's possible that wasn't what she was thinking. But when I heard her cover this, that's where my mind went. It occurs to me, we've talked a lot about that line. Must be a good line. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a lot of good lines on that album, huh? Mm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <Good> for Paul. <laughs> it did lead to this little exchange, the McCartney and St. Vincent Instagram live chat. He says, I love your version of it. He's talking to Annie. Because it's radically different from what I did. The whole beat of it. I listened to your track thinking, okay, she's got the band in, she's playing with the band, and she's got a backup group, maybe a couple of black girls in there. I'm like, oh, (laughs) God. Yeah. (laughs) And then he says, and then I asked you and you said, no, it's me. Uh, So... Yeah, I'm not coming down on Paul here. I don't think. Should we be talking about this? (laughs) No, no, no. I'm not coming down on Paul here. I just think it's it's sort of like adorable in that boomery sort of way, where you're just like, ah, you you done phrased that pretty poorly, didn't you, Paul? But uh, he doesn't mean any harm by it. It's just sort of funny. He's hey, grand dude. Uh, Anyway, I I agree. I thought it was a band too, and it's Annie playing all the instruments, which is again really cool. I mean, she's not like a drummer on a lot of stuff, but she's drummed a bit in the past. It's a cool video yeah. of her drumming with Jenny Lewis on YouTube, which which I love. So anyway, it does have a big, soulful, full band sort of feel. So I, I understand where Paul's coming from, and I think Annie did a great job. And I promise you, Chris, I could literally talk about this for another few hours. Well, it's great for her to get that compliment from Paul, who, look, maybe I'm amazed in 1970 sounds like a damn band like that is such a band live sound album and it's all Paul. So to get that compliment from him, that is pretty meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Deep down blood orange remix. What'd you think of this one? This was one of my favorites of a lot. Wow. Really? Yeah. I really enjoyed it.
Okay, so this is Devante Hines, or David Hines, apparently. And he's really an interesting musician all around. I I looked into his work a little bit, and first of all, this track really impressed me right away just in the first minute because of the harmonies. And I thought, wow, well, this is someone who's got a a kind of a different take on things and is a very good singer. These are really good double-track stacked harmonies. And I looked into... Devante Hines' work a little bit, and I found, among other things, that he did an album with Third Coast Percussion, which is hitting pretty damn close to home. That's a Chicago-based, basically new music percussion ensemble. But they work with some big names from time to time. They just commissioned a piece from Danny Elfman, for example. Wow. They won the Grammy, actually. I believe it was last year. It was the first time that a percussion ensemble had ever won a Grammy for chamber music so very interesting that he did an album with this new music percussion ensemble from chicago yeah so i found just looking up this guy's work he works with a lot of different people so it's a lot of the featuring genre right the kind of artist kind of like thundercat actually where a lot of the tracks are featuring someone so he has someone step in as a singer or to write words or whatever but still he's the the architect of the whole record so yeah, very impressed. Really liked this. Wow, yeah. So that's a total flip for you from the right from album the original. Version. Yeah, did not care about this track on the original. A success story of McCartney yeah. reimagined. A Mercer conversion. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure Paul is just gleaming right now. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I didn't know this guy at all, but I did the similar kind of dive and took a look, and yeah. Haim, Florence and the Machine, Carly Rae Jepsen, Chemical mm-hmm. Brothers, Kylie Minogue, ASAP Rocky, Blondie, Harry Styles, Mariah Carey. He's been around the block, uh, clearly. And it's funny, this was the one I got asked about by coworkers because everyone knows me as the Beatle freak. And I got asked by coworkers, like, oh, I hear Blood Orange did something with Paul McCartney. And I was like, who? So I'm like, listen, I want to talk to you about Paul McCartney. I'm just going to need more context. So please give it to me. Like, <laughs> This is one of the people this album introduced me to who I definitely will be following up on. Yeah. Well, I could see why people got into it because, yeah, I think he made this track stronger yeah. than the record. And that is a rare, rare thing. I like that he went with a clean production style and actually cleaned up Paul's vocal a lot, I think. And brought it up in the mix Mm -hmm. and in a way that was actually quite nice. And he had all these different harmonies flying around Paul's vocal and then the way the drums drop in and it's mixed with that sort of hammering piano, which, by the way, has some shades of like 1985 in there. It's just Mm -hmm. a really nice blend. And so I walked away from this one feeling quite good. And uh, I have a quote here from Rolling Stone. So... Hines was puzzling through a new version of McCartney's low-key Deep Down, and he said, quote, Whenever I do remixes, it's always such a conundrum. If I like a song, I don't want to redo it, you know? So I try to see it almost as an alternate reality. I thought Deep Down would be one of the most challenging songs, which is why I picked it. So that's interesting to hear that he got to pick, because I couldn't find that in any of the other research. I thought they were just assigning people songs. But evidently, Someone else mentioned picking in one of the Instagram interviews, I want to say. And it makes me actually appreciate all the songs more, because if they intentionally did it, then that's, that's really great. They, ha- they must have restricted it at some point, because they can't have multiple people picking the same song. So maybe certain people got to pick. 
And then later in the process, it was like, here's what's left. <laughs> here's the here's the scraps. So he picked it for the challenge, and he was stranded for the moment at a, quote, rented house with very limited equipment. And he wound up pitching up McCartney's vocals by 5%. Quote, then I removed all the chords and played around on keys to find some new interesting chords to match, he says. He went on to layer sounds of a chintzy clarinet and cello that he'd bought online during the pandemic. Quote, they're like the worst made instruments you can imagine, but I use them and tinkered with studio effects until he arrived at an elegant marriage of revolverish psychedelia and his own cool, sophisticated pop. Quote, I had to record some backwards guitar, he adds with a laugh. I don't know how many times I'm ever going to be linked to Paul McCartney in my life. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Again, I love that they're all geeking out. Like all these people are just having a ball and playing Absolutely. with a beetle. So we think maybe we're flipping the record at this point. And that brings us to track six, Seize the Day, featuring Phoebe Bridgers, who you're a big fan of. Why don't you tell us a little bit? Phoebe Bridgers. So let me tell you about Phoebe Bridgers. Please. I am not a fan of emo music okay i am not particularly like a bright eyes dashboard confessional my chemical romance kind of guy i'm not really even too much into the 80s emo stuff like the cure the cure stuff like that i'm not in love with it i I think it's smiths i there so the smiths is transcendent for me because i find a lot of those lyrics really obnoxious and funny Mm -hmm. and Sometimes that's the flip for me with a song or an artist. If I hear them being actively clever or funny or something or like ridiculously obnoxious for no reason, it sometimes makes me like them more a little bit. So when I heard you're the one for me, Fatty, I was like, oh, okay, tell me, (laughs) tell me more. (laughs) I am the one for you. I am the Fatty. So I'm not accustomed to that music, really. I don't really listen to it, but she is a kind of modern proprietor of that genre in a way that really appeals to me. And it was a song called Kyoto from her album Punisher, which was the big single that hooked me. And it was actually the music video that hooked me because I've discovered that it's all with a wink and a nod and tongue in cheek and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's goth. Yeah, there's skeletons. But she's also like, she has a sense of humor about it. And I find that very endearing. So there's a bit of cult of personality there. Plus, she's a really good songwriter. I love the way she plays, and I also love her voice. And I listened to that record, The Punisher, and it was just on heavy, heavy rotation for me to the point where I became quite a convert lately. And for anybody who wants to criticize her for, like, smashing the guitar on SNL, like, that's, that's like, funny. Like, they, she, that's a joke. Like, that's what people don't understand about it. It's like, yeah, you could interpret that as pastiche and stuff, but that's her, like sending up the rock world a little bit or saying like whatever anybody can do this like there's a there's a methodology behind it so that's what i'm bringing to the phoebe bridgers discussion that's fantastic (laughs) since you know a bit about her let me tell you what i watched after listening to the song listening to the to the mccartney three imagined i watched videos for i know the end yes motion sickness Mm -hmm. savior complex and my favorite was the last one garden song Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those yeah. are great. And all of that was really good. Beautiful production, beautiful singing. Garden Song was the most musically interesting of those four to me. Yeah. 
But I guess we'll get into that when we get into her Instagram interview because I found that interview a little frustrating. <laughs> but yeah, she does. She looks a little awkward in the video, and she I saw it described as like her having a conversation with like an uncle or something that she doesn't see very often. <laughs> like, it was very yeah. It was a bit awkward. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know. I think she, you know she's just. I guess Paul, like a good host, sort of took over. Mm-hmm. And started just telling stories. You know, she was in a vulnerable enough position that she couldn't really interject much. So there was a point where Paul had taken over. And so the interview was frustrating. Yeah, she's probably the youngest on the record, too, I would suspect. Sure. Yeah. Or at least close to it. So, you know, it may be a bit of that. In the latest Jackson Brown music video it came out at the time of this recording two days ago my cleveland heart is the video she devours his heart dressed as a nurse in the video okay interesting she's one of these artists who has kind of got the appeal of the old guard a little okay okay like elton john said he was going to punch somebody if she didn't win a grammy and then she didn't and then i assume he punched someone i I sincerely hope he followed up on that promise, Elton, because we're all watching. But it's those kinds of artists that I tend to also be attracted to in that sense. Like Jack White has got the appeal of the older guard. He's friends with all mm. these guys. And so that, it's that kind of thing. So anyway, she is much in that, in that sort of tradition of the rock that came before her. So that's what I'm bringing to the Phoebe Bridgers discussion. Now, I was delighted to find out that she is one of the few artists that actually kind of covered the song and yeah. made it her own a little. She really did. Tweaked the only lyric in the song that I didn't like the first time around. She tweaked that lyric. So I was like, good for you, Phoebe. Like, I'm not sure she actually made it better. She, I mean, it's equally weird. It's equally weird, but the McCartney version... Well, let's let's talk about it for a second. So <laughs> in the song Seize the Day... McCartney has that line where he says Yankee toes. That line means that even if you're used to the cold, it's cold. That's how I took that line. So I'm happy that there is an interpretation of that. Okay. Because I came to find out that McCartney himself had no idea what Yankee toes and Eskimos was supposed to mean. Well, I know what he was saying. And just decided to keep... I'll be the judge. (laughs) (laughs) That was how I would take it in the context of the song. That life can be hard, even if you're accustomed to harsh conditions. I am happy that there is an interpretation for it. To me, it sounded a little like he didn't know what to put there and he just kept the blocked out phrase. Oh, that's the McCartney genius. He just thought of that line first, right? And the song (laughs) kind of flowed from there. And he kind of fleshed out that line for the rest of the song. So Phoebe changed it to megastores and carnivores, which... (laughs) How is that any better? Well, I don't know. It flows (laughs) off the tongue a little nicer, but I think what she was saying is that in the song, Paul's talking about there's going to be this horrible stuff that happens in the world, but it has a shelf life. You know, it is true that my interpretation of Yankee toes, he might be talking about a Yankee as an American, in which case it wouldn't make much sense. Huh. I went with the Yankees being Northerners and they live in cold places, but actually... That's just the North Carolina boy and me talking there. <laughs> wow. Well, no, that's an interesting interpretation. I thought Yankee Toes was just some sort of folksy English thing for like wearing socks with sandals or something. Like I had no idea what he was talking about. In fact, I Googled it and Google said, get the fuck out of here. That's nothing. That's well, not I anything. I took it as Yankees, meaning people in the North, people who live in Massachusetts and Maine and you know, cold ass places. 
Because Eskimos, well, I made the Eskimo Association. You know, the associative network was opened up with Eskimos retroactively onto the first. <laughs> this has really gotten stupid. Sorry, <laughs> you were saying something. <laughs> no, what I was saying is, I think that in the context of the song, when you look at the lyrics, it's like, yeah, the bad things will stop eventually. And so she put in a couple of bad things. She put in megastores and carnivores. The, okay. That stuff will stop one day. Okay. And the earth, you know, it will either regenerate or life will continue anew in some way. Like when you look at the lyrics of the song, it's kind of what McCartney's saying there. So I thought her selections made a bit more sense to me. But I'll um, buy it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll buy that for a dollar. Oh, good. God, I just sold it to you. I don't care to be bad. I prefer to think twice. All I know is it's quite a show, but it's still all right to be nice. Mega stores and carnivores will turn to frozen ice when the cold days come. So she was a little afraid, actually, to touch it in the studio. She didn't really know. Again, this is stemming from not really having a clear mission statement from management going into this thing. But she said, quote, we pitched your drums down a lot, and I thought we were being really revolutionary. And then we heard what other people did. We <laughs> just like throw the whole song out and just have a couple of lines. But Tony Berg, her producer, advised her to change the key during the chorus. And Tony kind of acts in that sort of George Martin role for Phoebe in the studio because she doesn't know how to read music. And mm-hmm. and in fact, she said, I don't quite know my circle of fifths when they were talking about songwriting. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Chris talked about that. This part of the conversation was frustrating for me, but also weirdly validating because she makes this point to her producer, Tony Berg. Well, most people's songs don't change key. And I'm thinking, well, that's why changing key is on my checklist for what makes a cool song. Because (laughs) most people's songs don't change key. And I'm watching Paul McCartney play along in this really funny way because he says, yeah, why would you do that? And I'm thinking of Penny Lane where it starts in (laughs) B major and goes to A major for the chorus. And it does a second chorus at the end back in B major, which both feels like a lift from A major, but is also a return to B major. And I'm thinking, you know exactly why you would do that, Paul McCartney. You're being super cool right now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love this. This is good. Give it to me. Again, I point to her youth. You know, she's she's a young songwriter, you know? She's getting experience. Yeah, she's really good. And by the way, this is one of the highlights on the album, for sure. You know, along with, as we said, the St. Vincent so far, and uh, for me, the deep down, but this one is you know, one of the true covers. Mm-hmm. You know, a cover that brings something. It's really good. So definitely put me down as a, a big fan on this one. Awesome. Well, that's good to hear. Well, we can move on then to track seven here, Slidin', the EOB remix. And I think you and I both had the same moment where we're like, who the hell is EOB? Um, What young artist am I about to be introduced to? That would be Edward John O'Brien, guitarist for a little little indie outfit known as Radiohead.
And this is weirdly straight cover. Is it a cover? Um, yes. I don't know. It sort of incorporates the original tracks. You know, I mean, it certainly has the original vocal. And what I have here is Associated Performer Vocals Paul McCartney and Associated Performer Vocals EOB. And producer Paul Epworth, we've seen him before on New, of course. Yes. And otherwise, it's not clear who's playing what here. I guess it's, you know, it doesn't specify that Paul's playing the instruments, but these seem to be mostly Paul's instruments, right? I was not sure. I interpreted it as it being largely new instrumentation because it sounded to me, especially after I found out that this guy was the guy from Radiohead, I, I was like, oh, just this actually has that vibe. I know that sound of like time compressed audio and certainly the vocals, you can hear it in the vocals, but I feel like I'm hearing it in the drums. Like I'm hearing that time compressed sound, but it could be my imagination. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's a guitarist, so I imagine he got in there and messed around. Mm-hmm. But from Instagram, we learned that EOB, I guess he wants to be known as EOB. I'm just going to say EOB. Okay. He said the brief was to do whatever we wanted with the song. So he got to work. Helter Skelter felt like a good reference point. Ramp up the intensity and add a dose of chaos. And he says thank you to Paul Epworth and engineer Riley McIntyre. So that says to me, yeah, they messed around with the track a bit, but he added a dose of chaos. And so that says to me, extra instrumentation, some capacity. The interview between Paul and Edward here was really cool, actually, because they've known each other for a little while. Obviously, he's been a staple in music business for a bit. But, you know, famously, Paul worked with Radiohead producer Nigel Godrich on Chaos and Creation. I don't know if you remember this, Chris, but there was a thing a few years ago where Paul supposedly was trying to get a Radiohead collaboration going and they weren't interested. I never heard about that. How arrogant were they, if that's true? (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember the specifics. So somebody write us in, tell us, tell us on the Facebook group. I believe that happened. I can't swear to it, but I believe that happened. But so anyway, this is Yeah, this is the first proper, I guess, musical collaboration between the two of them. But he said uh, via BBC Radio 6 music interview, I was in the studio literally just before lockdown, this last lockdown. I was in the studio with Paul Epworth just playing around, having some fun, trying some stuff out. And my solo project is signed with Capitol and Capitol does all of Paul McCartney's stuff. And Capitol said, would you be interested? No pressure. Do whatever you want. If it's not for you, then no worries. And so I listened to the song and checked it out, and I thought, this is pretty cool. He played all the instruments. It's the album that he brought up just for Christmas called McCartney 3. So I really liked that, and I heard, and I thought that this is good. This is really good. So I said, Paul Epworth, would you fancy dot, 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 because I don't have much time. We were just about to go into lockdown, so we literally had just over a day. And I asked Paul, do you fancy getting stuck into this and trying to do something with it? And he was up for it. It was great. It was a moment of light in the darkness of winter. We had a lot of fun. You know, we got into his vocals and pulled things up and added some chaos and that guitar. You know, we just wanted to make it up a little bit more. I guess my reference point was Helter Skelter. He talks about that, which I already read. So I guess, yeah, they messed around with it a bit and then added a bit. 
I don't know. I I dig the singing on this, and I, I kind of thought, I mean, the original singing on this, and yeah, this is not a case where I'm going to prefer this to the original. You know, same. I like it though. It's not a low point for me on the record. I just not like at the all. Original it's fine. Number. It's fine. Pretty solid, just rock cover. Pretty good. Well, well, no, let's not call it a cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hybrid. This is one of the hybrids, right? I guess like Saint Vincent, that's a bit of a hybrid too. Yeah. are on long-tailed winter bird the damon albarn remix yeah so this is someone i guess i maybe should have heard of damon albarn now i thought i didn't know who this guy was either but he's from the band blur right didn't know that and yet he is and i like blur i mean i know a couple of their tracks of the brit pop people Blur is a nice one, right? I guess. I mean, I did a little poking around and did listen to some Blur tracks. And I listened to this guy's stuff in general and found myself thinking, oh, so he's responsible for a lot of music I don't like. (laughs) I don't know. Song two? What is song two? Because that was just like, that made me just want to like tear my head off. (laughs) I don't know what that song is. I had a girlfriend who was super into cocaine and loved Blur (laughs) for a couple years there toward the end of the 2000s. And she loved the song Crazy Beat. And that's one that I got quite into at the time for reasons which are which are obvious by what I just said. So that's my experience with Blur. I was listening to it a lot in cars, making out and stuff. Ah. And, you know, humble brag. Okay. Humble brag. Um, but that's my experience with Blur. So anyway, I didn't know anything about Damon Albarn or any of that stuff. But I guess he's known Paul mm-hmm. for quite a while. Yeah. And Paul McCartney had given him some advice back in the day. I guess back in the day for Blur would have been the late 90s. But he said that Paul told him, always think about what it's going to look like tomorrow. What you say, what you do, just think about the consequences before you do it, which is a very Paul McCartney thing to tell somebody. That is coming from a place of knowledge. Right. Paul continued, be present when you make the decision. You can't control everything, but the point is, if you know why you're doing something, there's more of a chance that come tomorrow, you'll be able to justify it. Mm -hmm. And so that's wonderful advice for a young artist. And I guess he tried to pay it back later during the Kanye period of Paul's life. He said, quote, I've got a problem. I wonder if Paul would agree with that characterization of his life 
It was the Kanye period of his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Anyway. Uh, he said, quote, I've got a problem with that abusive collaboration. Kanye West trapped Paul McCartney, Abram told French publication Nouvelle Obs. He added, I see Paul McCartney in the video, but I don't hear Paul McCartney on the track. Before he decided to go work with Kanye West, I sent him a text saying, beware, but he ignored it. He does what he wants. It's Paul McCartney. Kanye West is one of the people who feed on other people. And first of all, to unpack a couple of things there, he has Paul's cell phone number? Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess anybody can just get that i mean i don't know if he's like friends with stella or something like (laughs) something like that (laughs) and he texted him and in the article i assume there was more but if he literally just texted him beware (laughs) then that's (laughs) maybe there's a reason you didn't get a reply back buddy i'm sure he texted more that was just a joke but you're right (laughs) beware Paul's like, I am way too high to get a text like that right now. But I thought he did something interesting with this tune. And I like that he turned it into a little funk thing. All of that said, the original of this track from the record is never going to be surpassed for me. It's one of my favorites, if not my favorite track on McCartney 3. So nothing this guy was going to do was going to change that, I don't think. Yeah. But I liked what he did. What did you think about this one, Chris? It didn't do much for me. So this is kind of in the do whatever you want and fly in some vocals genre. Maybe not all the way, right? So we're getting all the different gradations on this album, right? Of how how wrong remixes and covers could go and how right they could go. But this seems like one of those cases of, yeah, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I've got some vocals here. And at least he keeps it in key, you know, more or less. And... But yeah, it doesn't do much for me. Yeah. There's a bit of sonic creativity in it, for sure. There are a few spots where I did kind of think, well, this guy's got a heck of an ear. I don't want to judge this artist on the basis of this remix and the few things I clicked on today. So I'll withhold judgment on the artist. I just don't care much for the remix. Well, that's fair. I think much like a lot of Blur songs or that girlfriend I had who really loved Blow, it does kind of jolt you (laughs) awake at times, you know, like... (laughs) (laughs) The remix kind of rambles a little and then it takes a hard left and you're like, what? What was that? And you sort of wake up a bit. (laughs) And so I like that about it. It's a little surprising in that way. But I just, yeah, nothing was going to, nothing was going to top the album version for me. Oh, yeah. And and this is one where it the album track is really about the track, about the record, and not so much about the songwriting. So it's not as if there's much to reinterpret there. All of the charm on the on McCartney 3 is coming from the record itself. Look out for laboratory love. Look out for laboratory You think that she's a winner when she's cooking you your dinner, but she's really moving in for the kill. Watch out for lavatory little. Watch out for lavatory little. She says it's hunky dory when she's telling you her story, but she really thinks you're making her So let's move to track nine here. Now, Chris, before I talk about lavatory little and my thoughts on it, I'm curious to hear yours. 
I really like Josh Hame and what he does with Queens of the Stone Age, but I'm curious, what do you think about this one? I heard some Caius albums <laughs> a long time ago and uh-huh. thought they were kind of cool, but I barely remember what that sounded like. And Queens of the Stone Age, I probably can't pull up in my mind right now a single song. So I don't really know who this is. I know that those are important bands, but I just don't really know who this is. So I'm just listening to this thinking, okay, some guy is doing Laboratory Lil. I, I love, <laughs> right? And uh, Josh Holm, apparently, is, is doing Laboratory Lil. I love the way he sings it, actually. Wow. I love his soft voice. I actually thought of Emmett Rhodes, who we talked about on the Ryan Tribute episode. Right. Young Emmett Rhodes. So I loved his soft singing and the kind of rockabilly quality of this is, you know, it's charming. It's, you know, not going to be a highlight or a, a rotation track for me, but nice. Well done. What'd you think? I did not care for this. Okay. <laughs> well, here's why. You are more invested in this song than I am. Yeah, I love this song. Well, you liked it too, right? You liked the nasty I liked it just fine. Quality. Yeah. yeah. I did, yeah. I'm not a huge Queens of the Stone Age fan, but I like them. And there's a lot of connections to other music I like via Josh Hame. And I saw him perform on stage with the Rack and Tours out here at the Greek Theater back in 2019. And so that was very cool. He's got a reputation, you know, for being kind of a rock and roller, kind of a hard rocker. And when I saw he was doing Lavatory Lil, I thought, great, we're going to get a blown out rock oh so what i liked about the soft singing you that was not what you were looking for to me it was just too faithful he didn't do anything to me this was an example of whatever the mission statement was i consider this a failure on the basis of he didn't take advantage of it he didn't inject himself into it enough to me well, yeah, I'm always skeptical, even of Paul, when people come in and make a big virtue of how they did it real fast. Right. <laughs> I didn't want to put too much effort into it or anything. Right. I always think, well, anyone can say that. <laughs> anyone can do something half-assed and say, well, that was the point for it to be half-assed. So yeah. I'm always a little skeptical of that. And when I heard him basically talking that way in the Instagram interview, I thought less of the track. So this is one of the cases where the research <laughs> made me think a little less of the track. But I didn't love it to begin with. I just thought his singing was really nice and that it was a good rock song, you know, like a good rock record, um, old-fashioned rock record. Yeah. He said he wanted to make it sound raw or he wanted to be the rawest on the record. Yeah, that's what people say when they do shit at the last minute. <laughs> and they're like... <laughs> With him, I expect it a little just because he comes from that school. Like when all of the other kids at school were doing emo stuff, I was doing the the more garagey stuff. And he comes from that sort of primordial soup, that early 2000s garage rock kind of sound. Sure. And so they're kind of about that a little bit. So while I agree with you that it sounds an awful lot like my dog ate my homework, but in my dog's defense, the homework was delicious. <laughs> okay. that's I've never heard that before. Well said. <laughs> well, I just made it up. But awesome. The, <laughs> but the uh, I think the intent is maybe a little consistent with his approach. What I found actually interesting listening to that Instagram live chat was that Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers drums on this track. Yeah. And that's really cool. And I also love that he plucked a bit of bass line from Paperback Writer mm-hmm. as an homage. And that's cool because I think Paperback Writer and Rain, those are like 
for me, the heights of McCartney bass in the Beatles, mm. that sort of 66 groove no he was kidding. in where he's yeah. putting the little twiddles on everything. And, oh, yeah. I love that stuff. Really good. I like Beatles. Overall, I give this one a... <laughs> I can't believe you like Beatles and sex, too. <laughs> Listen, Beatles sound nice. Pizza tastes good. Um, but yeah, so I was not impressed with this, but yeah, it's okay. It was kind of a letdown for me, but I think it was just based on my own expectations. It's really my own fault. I blame myself. <laughs> That's a bit like me with The Kiss of Venus, where I had a certain idea in mind, and after a couple listens, I settled into what he actually decided on. Right. Yeah, that's good. That shows an open-mindedness, Chris, that we're open to trying new things. And in your case, you liked it. In my case, I decided to be a curmudgeon. Well, I always think expectations are the worst reason to criticize something. I thought it was going to be X, and it turned out to be Y. Thumbs down. Yeah. Listen to what it actually is. You know. Right. When winter comes and food is scarce. Fence by the acre plot. Two young foxes have been nosing around. The lambs and the chickens won't feel safe until it's done. I must dig a drain by the carrot patch. The whole crop spoils if it gets too damp. And where will we be with an empty store when winter comes? So that brings us to When Winter Comes, Anderson Park. Yeah. Now, this is a highlight. Holy cow. Me too. Yes. I'm happy you said that. Now, you love the original as well. So I did, yes. And a friend of mine just recently turned me on to Silk Sonic, and I was blown away. So actually, Bruno Mars, Anderson Pock, new to me. Embarrassing as it is to say. And I can see this is going to be a project, both of these artists, uh, on the basis of Silk Sonic. But then I hear this, and I spent the day clicking around on some Anderson Pock, and this guy's talented. Yeah, I had a friend give me his 2016 record, Malibu, a couple of years ago, and I'm already sort of predisposed to that indie hip-hop kind of sound. You recommend that as a good starting album for him? I-, I liked it, yeah. I haven't really dwelled there too much, but I remember it being one of the ones that I particularly liked I sort of got that and Childish Gambino around the same time it's just sort of from the same school that kind of indie hip-hop sort of sound and I'm always impressed by what he does he has a surprising amount of melody for hip-hop records and a lot of variety too like variety of sound and so not only is he a a groundbreaking rapper but he's also a singer songwriter producer multi-instrumentalist and grammy award-winning recording artist so he's got quite an extensive resume there no joke sonically i think anderson kind of turned this song into something really cool and something that sounded to me like the off the ground b-side that it kind of was almost it kind of is right yeah, yeah. It, he gave it a little like i don't know style style thing or like 
one of those, I can't imagine one of those songs, you know, which are my favorites. I mean, of my top mm, McCartney songs. Me too. I love those songs. I can't imagine's up there. I keep coming back. Those songs, those are my favorites. So he kind of made it sound like that to me. And maybe that's just my brain hearing 1992, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, with Silk Sonic, it seems as if Anderson Pock is on this kind of retro kick right now. Yeah. And it makes sense, actually, that it would take you back a little ways. Now, this is a true reimagining, right? So this really reconceives what this song is, but keeps Paul's vocal. Now, what'd you feel about keeping the vocal in there? I guess you're okay with that, with it being 92, Paul. Yeah, I loved the vocal to begin with. Yeah, okay. So I was, yeah, I was tickled. I thought it was great. I thought it sounded awesome. This is an ultimate success for me. Anderson Pock could have sung it, but... True. It's kind of cool that he leaves Paul in there, but reimagines everything around it. Yeah, this is what this album's about. I get really happy when people take 2020 Paul vocals off of things, but I have absolutely zero problem with (laughs) 1992 (laughs) Paul vocals thing on it. But I thought this was a success in the sense that I already liked the original and I liked the remake just Mm -hmm. as much for different reasons. And in a totally different way. This is good. And this is a reimagining that is right at the cusp of doing something different. But you know what? It keeps the harmonic structure of the original. It makes some cool chord substitutions, but it never really strays from the original. So it changes the feel mainly. And of course it adds all this instrumentation, but a new version, but keeps the structure of the original. Well done. When winter comes And food is scarce Which brings me to the final track on the record, which I know is your favorite. Deep, deep feeling. But (laughs) when I said at the beginning of the episode that we shared the experience of listening to one again and having a better experience the second time, this is what we meant, right? Because this this was better the second time. This was much better the second time. I really thought this was like the worst fireman garbage the first time (laughs) I heard it. And then listened again and thought, you know, this is actually pretty creative and goes a lot of different places. This is a rinse the raindrops is what this is. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Kind of goes all over the place, quiets down, speeds up. So this is Deep Deep Feeling, the 3D RDN remix. And I guess this guy, Robert, is from the band Massive Attack. At a whopping 11 minutes, 23 seconds, Paul McCartney was reportedly tickled that he actually extended the track. And he's quoted as saying, I thought eight minutes was indulgent. Then he comes back with 11. <laughs> this guy gets it. He this guy knows gets what me. I was trying to do. Thank you. 
So temporary secretary, we know. Okay, well, we didn't talk about it yet. So temporary secretary, I barely noticed the first time. I think I kind of listened to this in the background the first time. <laughs> and so the second time, I'm like, oh, it's temporary secretary. Holy yeah. cow. So that's an interesting little homage. But everybody loves that song now. Everybody does love that. that was my, <laughs> in fact, that was my favorite moment from the press. From McCartney 3. Right. That one reviewer who was like, and then suddenly everyone decided this was brilliant. (laughs) Well, it never slept on me. (laughs) I always love that song. Yeah. Well, you're ahead of your time, Chris. You're ahead of your time. I was on a run when I listened to this album the first time. And when it came to this track, I thought this thing was three different tracks. I literally thought three different people covered Deep, Deep Feeling. You could be forgiven. Yeah. And then... I realized it was one long thing. And I guess I was just like, that was an interesting way to end this record. But listening to it again, I softened to it quite a bit. I actually wound up quite liking it. A little spacey. It's fine. Yeah. Anything that quotes from Temporary Secretary is probably going to be all right by me. So (laughs) once I noticed that, it was kind of like, well, I think maybe I like this track, actually. So, yeah. So there it is. That is McCartney 3 Imagined. Apparently, there's a track we haven't heard yet. There's a long-tailed winter bird Idris Elba remix that will apparently mm. only be available on the physical version of the album, and to my knowledge, has not been released either in bootleg or official capacity yet at the time of this recording. So we can't actually talk about that one beyond the fact that it evidently exists and evidently will be given to us at some point in time. Okay, so that's the album. How about a little bit of press? Most of it was virtually the same. I saw a lot of similar reviews, favorable reviews, mainly four out of five stars. The Guardian gave it that, calling it um, a classy set of remixes from assorted studio alchemists. That allows Maka to experiment further by proxy. There are predictable hits, Beck's dance-friendly Find My Way, a surprise miss, Damon Albarn lost in the mists of long-tailed Winterbird, and arresting successes, 3D of Massive Attack, with a 10-minute makeover of Deep Deep Feeling, from squelching house beats to long, shimmering fade. So... The Guardian, really into the 11-minute deep, deep feeling. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And yeah, and then NME also gave it four out of five stars. McCartney 3's freshness lends itself to both faithful covers and complete rewrites. There's no baggage to these songs. Those who daren't deviate too far from the original have just as much success. St. Vincent's slinky take find success as their rock backgrounds converge while phoebe bridgers sees the day yanks mac to the same warped world as her 2020 breakthrough album punisher anderson pock's subtle tweaks on the already gorgeous when winter comes turns macca's to-do list there see singing about doing stuff (laughs) into a gorgeous lo-fi soul macca started the song with the intent of warming our toes on his chilly Surrey farm, but Andersons are dug deep into the Golden State natives' sandy beaches. All right. Lots of nice little pull quotes from that, but yeah, most of these reviews I found to be very 
similar along the same lines. Everybody seems to be giving it about four out of five. I saw four out of five over and over, which is overrating it, I guess. I mean, I don't normally get into ratings on the show, but four out of five, really? What would they give wildlife? All right, here we go. Yeah, it seems a little high. Seems a little high. So I brought a couple too. Uh, Stuart Berman from Pitchfork on April 17th said, Even if you don't look at the album credits, you'll probably know exactly who's behind the boards. Beck turns Find My Way into a song that originally sounded like a mellow gold demo (laughs) into a bongo-slapping Midnight Vultures workout. St. Vincent amps up the film noir melodrama of Women and Wives by multi-tracking herself into a girl group chorus line. And Crown Bins, know how to pronounce it now, maybe, and Crown Bins... (laughs) Pretty Boys pulverizes its dainty source material into dubby vapor trails. The most successful remixers here work in service to the song rather than themselves. Blood Orange's Dev Hines rehabilitates the once tedious synth soul strut of Deep Down with his own velvety harmonies and an urgent piano arrangement recalling the Wings classic 1985. Hey, I did it. You're the guy. (laughs) Best of all is Anderson Pock, who elevates When Winter Comes from a farmhouse ditty into a breezy space-age bachelor pad reverie that would fit comfortably into his new Silk Sonic project. Wow. And you did it. We both did it. And finally, I pulled one from a lesser-known magazine, Tyler Golson, Far Out Magazine in April. But I still thought it was a good summary, and there's a good joke at the end. McCartney 3 Imagined is unlikely to find a prominent place in anyone's music collection aside from McCartney completists. And it will live now and forever as a quaint curiosity, a minor blip sometimes brought up when discussing the non-remixed version of the album. But an easily digestible and dispensable reworked album fits perfectly within the Paul McCartney story. When the world seems to get a little too heavy, we should all take a cue from Sir Paul and keep it light. And he gave the album a 6.9 as a tribute to Paul's many sex puns. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one is the one I agree with the most out of all of them. Not just because of the sex number, but because I think he kind of nailed it there. Yeah, it's a little fun curiosity, and I'm happy I have it, you know, and I'm a completist. Let's keep it light. I don't have much chart information on this one. I think we're, as I said earlier, waiting for the physical release of the LP before we get real chart information here. So, hey, we're ahead of the curve for once on Take It Away. (laughs) But (laughs) nevertheless, I do have some iTunes chart information. And I see that its chart debut was at number 21. Its highest position was at number 8. And its most recent position as of April 23rd, so quite out of date, was number 63. That's not bad for a remix out. That sounds pretty good. That's fine. So, you know, we'll find out if people are curious. They can check Wikipedia in a few months. I think the vinyl release is July 23rd. So it's quite a ways off yet. Yeah, so we got a minute. Maybe late summer, check the charts again. To see I got my I splatter vinyl getting ready to head my way. Very excited okay. about it. Okay, very good. Yeah. So there you go. Wow, we covered McCartney 3 Imagined in amazing detail. I know, yeah. <laughs> I know. Going into this, you're like, listen, I want to keep this so top line. And I'm like, I've written you essays about everything, sir. You, you really did. <laughs> and it turned into a Take It Away episode, despite my best intentions. <laughs> well, we want to thank everybody for all the warm reaction to the McCartney 3 episode again. Absolutely. 
That was great. And yeah. we're just having fun here, you know, Chris. This has been so much fun today. And it gets more fun every time we do it. And I'm really excited and looking forward to continuing to branch out and do some cool recordings with you. Yeah. So here we are at the end of the episode. And I would say, you know, I'd throw a little teaser out there and say, I think we're basically adding episodes to season four right now. And we intend to continue to cover Paul McCartney in ridiculous, excruciating detail (laughs) (laughs) going forward. But we have some other ideas and there's a season five forming. So Mm -hmm. keep an eye on that podcast feed. Keep an eye on the Facebook page. We've got some interesting new things in store for you. Yeah, we know that social media feeds are a little effervescent. You know, they tend to pass very quickly without uh, everybody catching them. But keep your eye there because we'll have a lot of cool things for people to check out. We're confident we do. Yes. All right, Paul, we did it. McCartney 3 Imagined. Great experience working with you as always, buddy. As always, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, start a new tradition, Chris. Uh, We're going to give ourselves a sign-off, and I think my sign-off for you is going to be, it's the best episode in the bunch! There you go. And then that's when you say, but it sounds this episode sounds like a parrot on my shoulder. (laughs) So what's yours? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't really think that through. I just started talking. (laughs) Hold on. All right. It's the best one in there. All right. Until next time. (laughs) Until next time. We'll see you next. uh, We'll see you next time. We'll go out with some Macca. Bye. Our theme music is Martha, My Dear by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, realized by Ryan Brady.